Welcome to another episode of The Watchdog with me, Loki, here on Mimpress, where we are going against the grain and engaging with perspectives and stories which are regularly ghettoized and marginalized outside the earshot and the eyesight of the masses. We hope that you can support us by clicking like, sharing, subscribing, and commenting on this video. And also, if you have the means to support us on Patreon to be able to continue this important work. Now, I am joined this week to discuss what has been one of the defining moral panics of our time. The panic in Britain around quote-unquote grooming gangs and child sexual abuse. I warn you that this episode, uh, it will be dealing in depth with some of these issues, so you may find it quite challenging or harsh. So if you do feel that you may not be in the right uh, frame of mind at this time or the right space to listen to something on a subject like this, please feel free to listen to one of our other episodes. It's my great pleasure to welcome with us today, Dr. Ella Cobain, Associate Professor in the Department of Security and Crime Science at University College London, UCL. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ella. Thanks. Ella, you have uh, written that uh, sexual abuse within the UK is rife. Um, what do you mean by that? So child sexual abuse happens on an absolutely epidemic scale. And that was very much one of the main conclusions, too, of the recent independent inquiry into child sexual abuse. The precise scale of the figures is not well known at all because the vast majority of abuse uh, doesn't get identified. Um, and also the last kind of national prevalence estimates are really out of date. Um, but the best available evidence we have are estimates that one in seven girls and one in 20 boys are sexually abused as children in the UK. So, I mean, it's a huge scale. And the Centre for Expertise of Expertise on Child Sexual Abuse estimates that half a million children are abused in the UK sexually every year. And again, on the offender side, it's estimates. Um, the, you know, there aren't hard figures. Again, only a very small proportion of offenders will ever be arrested, prosecuted, convicted, and so forth. There's a lot of attrition through the criminal justice system. But the National Crime Agency estimates that between 550,000 and 800,000 people in the UK pose varying degrees of sexual risk to children. So again, on a huge scale. And much of that risk is risk online. Um, so child sexual abuse, it happens across all communities. It happens across all contexts. It's not, you know, it's not particularly bad in the UK compared to other places. It's a massive problem nationally and globally. Um, and there isn't a single type of victims, a single type of offenders or a single type of abuse. It happens across all contexts, all our institutions. A lot of it is in families, in schools, healthcare settings, in the police, young offender institutes, care homes, sports clubs. You know, I could go on and on. Um, 
And another thing to note, especially given the kind of current construction around these sort of evil grooming gangs, which isn't to say what they're doing is not horrendous, it is. Um, but it's worth noting that according to the police, a lot of what they're dealing with is what's known as peer-on-peer abuse. So that's when other children are sexually abusing other children. Um, so yeah, essentially it's if we want to actually prevent child sexual abuse and support its victims and survivors, it's really important to have an approach that covers all these contexts, recognises the sort of uncomfortable reality of just how widespread child sexual abuse is, and sort of acts accordingly. And you have written that Suella Braverman's recent claims about quote-unquote grooming gangs go well beyond mere dog whistles and into overt racism. What do you think is overtly racist about what the Home Secretary Suella Braverman is saying? So I am absolutely categorically not denying that there have been horrific, horrific offences perpetrated by stereotypical groups of, you know, often including British Pakistani heritage men or, you know, other men. Um, that fall under this grooming gang stereotype. The, you know, there is no question that the abuse itself is not a myth. The problem here is all the kind of claims making and exaggeration around it. So what Home Secretary Suella Bradman did essentially was she wrote this exclusive in the Daily Mail, right-wing tabloid, claiming that perpetrators in grooming gangs, which is a media-constructed term that has no kind of sensible legal or social scientific meaning. So she said that these perpetrators are, and I quote, almost all British Pakistani. And she then went on to reduce victims to, again, I quote, overwhelmingly white girls from disadvantaged or troubled backgrounds. And she presented these claims as being facts. Now, the reason I describe what she's doing as overtly racist is quite simple. These things are not facts. And actually, they directly contradict the findings of her own department, so the UK Home Office. Um, and we've had a lot of moral panic around so-called grooming gangs in the UK over the last decade or so. And in 2020, the Home Office released a report, which is kind of popularly known as the Grooming Gangs Report. Um, but it's technically into a sort of more acceptable sounding euphemism, which is group based child sexual exploitation in the community. And that report looked at the best available evidence overall, and it concluded that the majority of such perpetrators were white. And to be clear, that is not, as a lot of people often assume, just because the UK is majority white. It was because there was no kind of reliable, generalizable evidence, i.e. sort of representative at national level, uh, to back up these deeply racialized stereotypes that have become so widespread. And the report also concluded that victims come from many backgrounds. They include boys, they include many children from ethnic minority backgrounds. So again, this kind of trope of white girls or sort of in nationalist language, our girls that need protecting, it just doesn't stack up against the evidence. And actually, the Home Office also released a literature review that went with the main report, which was considerably better standard, in my opinion. And that explicitly recognised the dangers of racialising abuse in this way and the harms it causes, because it's really damaging for children, um, 
because it makes it so much harder to respond to abuse effectively. And it's also really damaging for communities that are sort of stigmatized en masse as being sexually deviant. Um, so yeah, Braverman basically went out there with a massive exclusive promoting a dangerous, divisive misinformation. She then went on to make all these sweeping statements, like you said, around cultural values, which are deeply stigmatizing, essentially claiming that, you know, some groups are sort of almost culturally predisposed to abuse children. And that's been really common, actually, in the narrative over the last 10 years or so. This idea, um, Shamim Mir did some research on this, when the media present cases uh, involving white offenders, the focus is normally on sort of individual deviance. Whereas when it's cases involving um, groups of non-white offenders, it's much more around this sort of demand for collective responsibility and sort of blaming culture. Um, so, yeah, so Brabman did this. She was then, I would say, at best sort of weakly challenged in the media um interviewers picked up on the fact that actually what she was saying didn't stack up with the government's own evidence. Um, but she doubled down and she started then to sort of point to cherry-picked cases or locations and be like, well, no, I'm talking about, you know, Rotherham and Rochdale and Telford, which are places in the UK which have effectively become synonymous with the grooming gang scandal. Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, didn't go as far as Braverman did in her claims, but neither did he call her out or do anything about it. And he also defaulted to this kind of narrowing in on particular locations. And both of them did this very much within this um, context of blaming political correctness. So essentially implying that the UK being too politically correct is getting in the way of responding to child sexual abuse effectively. And that's, it's tired, it's selective, it's ill-informed as a frame. It completely ignores the fact that we have, you know, widespread and long-standing evidence of institutional racism in policing. So this myth that the police somehow kind of selectively gave a free pass to brown offenders, and yet at the same time were absolutely perfect in going after white offenders, just it's just not credible. Um, responses to child sexual exploitation and abuse have been poor in general. And again, that was a big finding of the uh, independent inquiry. And also this political correctness angle, not only does it very obviously play into the broader political agenda of the ruling party, but it also gives this really easy excuse for inaction. So if you know professionals haven't done their jobs properly, it's much easier to go, oh, no, it was, you know, political correctness. I couldn't do it. And there are. And it's also really insulting to all the people out there who have been doing their jobs properly and have been trying you know, desperately hard within a context of sort of ever dwindling resources. Yeah. Then Braverman went on to write an article. I think it was in The Spectator, so another kind of right wing title claiming, oh, it's not racist to tell the truth. But again, what we need to stress here is she was not telling the truth. Or if she had any evidence to back it up, she did not show that evidence. I mean, I personally, my personal feeling is that this argument of political correctness um, within institutions being a barrier to justice 
almost encourages vigilantism. And I think that is a real worry about what we're talking about. And we will, um, a little bit later on, go into the aspect of this, which almost implicitly encourages uh, people to take action and sometimes violent action, as we will see. Um, Mm. Now, in terms of the construction of this... uh, It also, sorry to jump in, it also makes it a lot harder to challenge misinformation in this space because then, and I have this happen a lot, it's then almost like, oh, no, you're part of politically correct establishment, you're part of this cover-up. So it's quite powerful in that way as well. So, So they construct a version of reality and then they construct a way of pushing back against actual statistics which better reflect reality with what is in a sense a conspiracy theory if we are to say that there's a liberal politically correct elite you know it it plays into a lot of this stuff around wokeism as well it's really Mm. just to push everything to the right it's just a way to push everything to the right in my opinion in terms of the way this idea has been constructed a lot of it comes back to the Quilliam quote-unquote study, I would say, um, which was able to conclude that 84% of quote-unquote grooming gangs were Pakistani men. And this was verbatim reproduced in headlines by all of the mainstream media several years ago. And this was the point when I first became aware of your work because you were one of the very few people that actually took this this scarecrow to co- to task in a way and and you you really um deconstructed uh that study if you could tell us a bit firstly about the study itself but then about what the problem was with it yeah so um i agree with you that the quilliam I hesitate to call it a study because it was so bad. Um, The Quilliam, let's call it a report. So I agree with you that the Quilliam report was a hugely important, in a bad way, intervention in this space. I wouldn't say, though, from my perspective, that that's where it it really began. For me, um, I think the current moral panic traces back uh, about six years prior to that, which is when The Times, which is a Rupert Murdoch-owned um, right-wing newspaper, um, had this like big front-page uh, expose where they claimed to have uncovered um, this new crime threat, which they called on-street grooming, which then kind of rapidly morphed into grooming gangs. So I think The Times was enormously influential in taking what had previously been a bit of a sort of far-right trope and migrating it into the mainstream. And then it really picked up pace and it's been sort of, I mean, I'm probably biased because I work on this stuff, so I notice it more, but I think it's probably fair to say it's been kind of one of the defining sort of panics of the last decade or so in the UK. But anyway, that's digression on that. So back to Quilliam. Quilliam Foundation is a controversial so-called counter-extremism think tank that has since closed, but took a while to close, to be honest. And there's been all sorts of issues around them over the years. 
And the other thing worth noting is that they've been very litigious. So it's been a difficult organization to engage with and criticize for lots of people because they've got you know, a history of bringing lawsuits against critics. And they tried that with me. I was very much kind of threatened and intimidated with legal action. Um, but the obvious defense to this is if you say something is rubbish, which is essentially what I was doing, and that is the truth, then you can't sue someone for that. So yeah, they basically released this report back in December 2017. Um, that, like you said, you know, their grooming gangs report, and it's the source of the statistic about 84% of so-called grooming gang offenders being Asian. And they presented their findings as, and I quote, conclusively irrefutable proof, which is, I mean, madness. Sort of anyone who knows anything about you know, science or research would would have alarm bells ringing at that point because that's that's just not you can never be that sure. Um, and they also kind of repeatedly try and stress that it's again I quote academic and evidence based, um, and really it's absolutely nothing of the sort. But what it did was it gave this very powerful existing stereotype this kind of veneer of statistical legitimacy because you know the media loves numbers and like you said it got a huge amount of attention almost entirely uncritical. Even the criticism that did happen came much later. The headlines still stand to this date. So, you know, if you Google grooming gang offenders or 84%, you still find this from big mainstream titles that have never bothered to correct it, which I think is atrocious, to be honest. But yeah, so it's basically a case study in bad science. Um, when you said you wanted to talk about it, I went back to some of the things I've written on it previously. And you know, I, I my mind was sort of blown all over again at just how bad it was. So, you know, in terms of their methods, they say, oh, we use, you know, extensive data mining methods, which is essentially meaningless. They don't report where their data come from. Um, they're, I mean, this is for people interested in um, how science is presented. Essentially, their methods section was a rehashing of another report's results. I mean, that is how bad it was. And it was, it looks like it came from media coverage. They'd basically gone through media coverage, cherry picking cases that fit their predetermined conclusions. Um, and in total, they looked at 264 offenders across 12 years. So that averages out as 22 offenders a year convicted. And to put that into context, in, you know, 2016, so similar kind of time period, there were nearly 6,000 687 offenders convicted of child sexual abuse just in England and Wales. So 22 offenders for the whole UK. That's, again, you know, the offenders are real. The offenders are horrific, but they are a small part of a much, much bigger problem. And the Quilliam report sort of also made these conclusions about victims. They didn't look at victims' characteristics. They didn't present any evidence whatsoever of looking at victims' characteristics, which actually would be very hard to do from media coverage because victims' uh, complainants in sexual assault cases have anonymity protections. But they still claimed that, um, and again, I'm quoting here, the Asian male slash white female perpetrator victim dynamic is the undeniable prominent feature. Um, they actively denied the existence of black and brown victims that I know existed on the cases because one of the cases they used as a case study 
is one I worked on myself extensively. So it's, I mean, it, it's disgusting. Imagine you or a family member sitting there and you've been sexually abused in these cases too. And it's like, oh no, you didn't exist. Your abuse didn't matter. And that's, I think that's the thing that upsets me. And a lot of people I know so much about this narrative is it's so insulting and damaging and hurtful to people who are continually sort of acting as if, you know, sexual abuse only matters if you're abused by brown men. And only then if it's in groups and only then if you're white and a girl and it's, yeah, it's revolting anyway. Sorry, side check. So on top of their utterly, horrendously awful statistical analysis, if we can even call it that, it's sort of basic counting on very dubious premises. The then sort of second part of the report is essentially a free-for-all on just making these big, sweeping, unsubstantiated claims where they try and get in pretty much any buzzword you can think of around. So they say grooming, it's caused by, quote, divisive, unevolved cultural identities, cultural misogyny, homophobia, insufficient integration of migrants, child marriage, and so on and so on and so on. And they blame the so-called regressive left and they blame extreme political correctness. And Part of the reason this worked so well for them is because of identity politics. So the authors themselves made a lot of the fact that they were British Muslims themselves. They didn't have any relevant experience or expertise around child sexual abuse or around, you know, basic data analysis. But it provoked this reaction of just absolute glee from the right wing commentariat because it was this idea that, you know, if even the Muslims have said it, then it must be true. And there was all sorts of reactions in that vein. And then also, yeah, further misrepresentation of what was already a terrible piece of pseudoscience. So the Sunday Times, for example, actually did have to issue a correction because it ran a headline saying Asians make up 80% of child groomers. So extending again from this kind of grooming gangs to all child sexual abusers. It was a horrendous report. And they were on the news. They were, like you said, it was covered in massive publications. And then for like months and months afterwards, anytime there was a case sort of vaguely conforming to the grooming gang stereotype, you'd see people from Quilliam popping up on the radio to give their expertise on what yeah. was going on. So Ella, that is fascinating. And when we look at this as an, a, a, very, uh, a very useful trope by political actors, used by political actors, we've seen whether it's UKIP, talk about it in you know those terms that you you mentioned before quote unquote our daughters um when you also look at someone like Darren Osborne who was the attacker at Finsbury Park Mosque he initially was headed down to London to uh, attack Jeremy Corbyn you know key figures of um who had been demonized by our right wing mainstream media um, he was looking for them. But one of the other things that seemed to be prominent in his thinking was this idea of, of grooming gangs. What do you think it is about this idea which has proved so useful to Islamophobes? Yeah, well, I mean, it's an absolute gift to the far right. Um, it legitimizes 
so much of what they're doing. It's um, Nazir Afzal, who was the chief prosecutor in um, one of the big cases in Rochdale, you know, described it once as being something along the lines of, um, you know, one of the biggest recruitment tools for the far right. So it really, it really helps. And you, funnily enough, you sometimes see people in far right circles getting quite defensive about this and being like, but no, you know, BNP were talking about this for ages. And that, and that's actually true. So this issue of so-called grooming gangs um, was on the BNP manifesto way before it, um, became so mainstream through the times and others um but what's happened is it, it's so much easier for them now because a lot of the work has been done for them because you know it's on all the major channels it's in all the newspapers you've got people in the highest political office people like Suella Braverman essentially endorsing this position you've got stuff like the you know the Quilliam statistics which then the you could see them they filtered right down to the street you could see them on flyers being given out by racist groups at football matches for example um, and those also, interestingly, I saw one of those that included a line saying something like, you know, even the liberal media report on it. So it must be true. Um, but, yeah, like you say, um, there's been some really, really horrendous, extreme cases where this narrative has been linked to deadly violence, to terrorist attacks. So places like Darren Osborne at Finsbury Park, Um the attacks in New Zealand in Christchurch. Um, the attacker had four Rotherham written on um, one of his uh, ammunition. Um, there was an attack, a firebombing at a migrant centre in Dover last year, where thankfully no one was killed, although the attacker killed himself afterwards. And he again, you know, had posted all these things online about Muslims raping white girls and so forth. Um, and this is part of a broader trend in the international far right around using kind of sexual violence committed by minoritized communities as being kind of emblematic of this broader attack on supposed white values and treating women and girls not as people, but almost as kind of like property to be defended. And to be clear, you know, none of this is about caring about children. So people like, you know, Tommy Robinson, Stephen Yaxley Lennon, who's sort of made a name for himself almost as like the poster boy um, speaking out on so-called grooming gangs. This is the same guy that almost caused a trial to collapse, a, you know, a complex child sexual exploitation trial in which victims would have been waiting months and months, if not years, to go to court. So there's this absolute disdain for actual survivors. Um and you see that as well when victims and survivors speak out to challenge the racial stereotyping around grooming gangs. So I know people who have been incredibly brave, who've been through absolute hell and who have dared to say, you know what? Yeah, I was abused by Asian men. I was also abused by other men and all of it was shit. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this. Yeah. But um, <laughs> and then the, the response, I mean, some of the response from the far right is just grotesque, you know telling people, someone like Caitlin Spencer, who's spoken out on this, being told that, um, you know, her children deserve to die. They should be pushed in the channel and drowned. So there's this sort of facade of caring about sexual violence, but it's a very thin facade. And then sort of something like UKIP, which you mentioned, you can see how things like the Quilliam Report then feed in directly. 
Um, so there's a guy in UKIP called Alan Craig who gave this speech that was very heavily criticised. I mean, that's something at least. Um, talking about how the UK is facing a so-called holocaust of our daughters. And in doing that, he cited the Quilliam Report. Or Tommy Robinson, you know, when he had his own court case for the disruption he'd caused and, you know, endangering that trial, he cited Quilliam's report in his defence bundle and he used it to sort of try and suggest, it seemed, that his claims about grooming were factually correct and wouldn't have prejudiced the trial. Um, and then there's also been sort of street level attacks, including murder. So there was an 81 year old guy, completely innocent, um, called Mushan Ahmed, who was beaten to death in Rotherham, um, by two of his white neighbors who were calling him racial slurs. So the P word, his Pakistani heritage and calling him a groomer, which in effect, by now, is a racial slur in itself, I would say. And you see that as well in the wake of Sarah Champion, who's a Labour MP, who's actually done a lot to endorse this stereotype. So to be clear, you know, it is not just right-wing politicians that have been a problem here. And in her community, um, there was some kind of grassroots um, research done in the wake of her comments. So she wrote an article in The Sun, which is another Murdoch owned um, tabloid, saying, you know, we need to face up to the truth about what Pakistani men are doing. She was criticized for the racism in it, rightly so. But they found that locally, you know, instances like children of South Asian heritage coming home from school, having been bullied and called a groomer. So this stuff filters right down to these more everyday racisms. My colleague Wakas Tufail and Joe Britton, they've done a lot of work in Rotherham, for example, about the kind of everyday racism and the enabled by this, by these narratives. And Rotherham again, uh, there's been huge concentrations of far-right marches and activity and victims and survivors there have pushed back as well. There was an open letter talking about how traumatic they found it to have their abuse and their trauma weaponized in this way by the far-right who were just sort of seeking to profit off it for their own gain. And then finally, more recently, what we're really seeing or starting to see more and more is this kind of convergence of two powerful moral panics in the UK at the moment, one around so-called grooming gangs and the other around this idea of there being the supposed invasion of refugees and asylum seekers. So we saw that earlier this year at Nosley. There was riots at a hotel um, housing refugees and asylum seekers where you could hear in the footage chants of nonces, which is British slang for paedophiles. So this kind of, again, this is so politically convenient for the Conservatives because it very much fits with this broader anti-immigration agenda. Absolutely. Um, you know, thank you so much for your work, Ella. It's so important and it's courageous. Um, in this, in in these times, there is a cost that people pay for speaking out against these um, sort of sacred mythologies that are constructed by the powerful within society. Um, overall, though, when we're talking about child sexual abuse and you know those horrific figures that you mentioned at the beginning, one in twenty boys, it's estimated, and one in seven girls having to experience that, um, you know, how has the push of austerity um, from the Conservative government 
since 2010 interacted with that as something that exists in society? Yeah, I mean, I think that's another reason why this is such a politically convenient trope for the Conservatives, because it's a, it's a huge distraction from the devastating impacts of austerity. So we've really seen, you know, services systematically underfunded and hollowed out. And child sexual abuse is not just a problem for the police. Um, so, you know, children's services, education, healthcare, um, social care, all these things really kind of facing devastating cutbacks that then affects their ability to respond effectively. Um, and again, it is much, much easier to blame supposedly woke um, frontline professionals than to acknowledge that, you know, people are having to do their job under this kind of increasingly constrained climate. And you see it really clearly with things like, just to give two examples, um, mental health services. So child and adolescent mental health services have been particularly hardly hit, hard hit by the cuts within the NHS. So victims and survivors of abuse facing months on end waiting lists to get, you know, even basic counselling services or people reporting that they've been turned away from counselling uh, because their cases are too complex, for example. Um, and then within the criminal justice system, like I said before, only a small fraction of cases ever make it to court. But those that do, the children or adult survivors involved face these kind of increasing weights to trial time, which is it can be devastating, essentially being left in limbo, um, waiting for a case. So, yeah, I mean, these are the things we should be talking about. But <clears throat> yeah. yeah, I mean. You know, as someone that has read some of the most prominent uh, figures of our kind of <clears throat> far right ecosystem, some of their most prominent thinkers—I'm not going to say their names—but I've been unfortunate enough to read one of the the main books, which is used. And what it seems to me is he's constantly doing is trying to project what are the symptoms of austerity on the society onto the shoulders of refugees and racialized others so he's constantly talking about waiting waiting times in the um, doctor's surgery or in hospitals he's constantly talking about school places he's constantly talking about housing he's talking about these issues but he's constantly putting it onto the shoulders of vulnerable people within the society um, so in a way, this, the manufacturing of this idea, it also plays into that projection um, of issues that are certainly <clears throat> exacerbated by our existing uh, political um, orientation of, 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 our, of our rulers. Ella, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, to do this i really appreciate that you have um, done that and i hope that maybe later on down the line we'd be able to maybe have another conversation whether on this or on something else that you may be working on at the time thank you very much to the audience for joining us this week uh, i hope you will like share and subscribe on this video thanks a lot thanks for having me